Even if something is objectively verifiable, that doesn't equate to subjective accuracy. Factual data is one thing. Analyzing and applying it, another. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the concerns that many have about what's happening in baseball and the general direction of the game, and that at all levels. And I mentioned the fact that these concerns I share, many of those concerns I share. But I also noted that while I and many others agree our concerns are very much the same, my ultimate answer to the problems, to what's going on in the game, to the direction the game is going, is going to be a solution that many who agree with me about my concerns would not agree with. And that is the solution is to recognize Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and to go about the game, running the game, making decisions in the game, playing the game for his honor and glory in obedience to his commandments. Now, I've been thinking more about that whole situation in the last couple of weeks. And I do believe that my conclusion is definitely accurate. People would not agree with me on the fundamental change that should take place or the fundamental direction the game should go. That said, however... I think about the basis about our concerns, those who would disagree with my answer. And I think that the source of the concerns of those people who wouldn't want to go where I say and mine is really the same source. The talk and debate now for several years has focused on or at least been a reaction to the increased use of data and analytics in the game. Primarily, the focus is on Major League Baseball, but really it's at all levels. And one of the issues that I think is expressed, not necessarily in these words, is a phrase that was used by a former boss of mine. He would often say, and and being very discouraged about making this statement, and that was my boss, Rick Tomlin. He was the pitching coordinator at first when I was a pitching coach, and then I was his assistant. He would bemoan the fact that we are losing the humanity of the game. I think he's right. And I think all of us who have concerns Whether we would express it that way or not, that's the problem we see. There's always been data and analytics in some capacity in this game. There's nothing new about that. Baseball people have always tried to get as much information, objective information, as they could, and then analyze it, figure out how do I use this to make myself better? How do I use this to make another player better, a team better? How do we use this to beat the other guy, the other team? That's not new. I do think that how we think about it, how we use it, how much importance we give to it, that seems to be far different now than it used to be. Coupled with that, not really connected to data and analytics per se, we see things happening on the field as it regards the actions of the players that are far different from what it used to be. Some of the things we see now in the quote-unquote old days would mean wearing a fastball in the ribcage. So why the change? Well, I think here is where, whether it's acknowledged or not, 
our concerns all come from the same source. Years ago, decades ago, a century ago, the influence of a biblical perspective in our culture and therefore in the game used to be much greater than it is now. And so there was a different view then than there is now on how the game should be played and how the game should be run. Now, objective data, like I said, has always been very important and is today as well on many fronts. And one of the places that I think it's very important is when you're determining whether to trade for a player, to sign a free agent. And then if you are going to sign this free agent, what kind of contract are you going to give this free agent? But we have seen over the last several weeks that even clear factual data, supposedly objective factual data, can lead to multiple subjective understandings of that data. It can lead to a subjective understanding on how to best interpret and apply that data as decisions are made. As I mentioned, over the last month, actually more than a month, we have witnessed this played out in Major League Baseball in a unique way, one that I have never seen. As a matter of fact, people who are much closer to the game, who have been around the game a lot longer than I, they have said they've never seen it either. And the end of it all finally came about. And the end of the matter is this. Hey guys, C4 here. Can't wait to see you guys at Twins Fest, January 27th and the 28th. Now you might be thinking, Twins Fest? The dates of Twins Fest? Are you kidding me? So unless you're a Twins fan and you happen to live close enough to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, you probably do not care about the dates of Twins Fest. Well, of course, that's not why I played that clip. It was not the announcement itself, but who made the announcement. Because the announcement was made by Carlos Correa. He is, or I guess you should say, remains a Minnesota twin. He finally, after agreeing to multiple contracts for multiple years, for multiple millions of dollars, finally signed, and it's official now, it's not just an agreement, with the Minnesota Twins. After that, Bob Nightingale tweeted this out. Minnesota Twins shortstop Carlos Correa wound up setting a record that should never be broken. Now listen to this. He agreed to $865 million and 29 years of contracts in 28 days this winter. That is absolutely remarkable. And fundamentally, what it all boiled down to was this. Carlos Correa had an ankle fracture back in the minor leagues in June of 2014. Up until this time, that ankle fracture has never cost him time on what used to be called the DL that is now called the IL. But when, at first, the San Francisco Giants announced that they had agreed to a 13-year, $350 million contract with Carlos Correa, before they were able to make that announcement official and the contract would be signed, they had x-rays taken of that ankle. And the medical people with the Giants were having some problems subjectively determining, all right, How do we look at these x-rays? What does this mean as it regards the duration, 13 years, and the amount, $350 million, of this contract? While they were trying to determine what to do, the New York Mets came in and they agreed with Carlos Correa to a contract. Not quite as high, but still massive. 12 years, $315 million. But then guess what happened? They had the objective x-rays, And they had some of the same concerns, they being the medical professionals, 
with the Mets, as the Giants' medical people did. Now, unlike the Giants, which all took place in a very short period of time, the situation with the Mets continued day after day and really for multiple weeks. And then finally, last week, not simply an agreement, but a contract signed. Carlos Correa is going to return to the Minnesota Twins. He signed a one-year deal there last year. He has signed a six-year, $200 million deal. It has the uh, possibility or the potential of being a 10-year, $270 million deal. So for the Twins and for Correa, it is a far cry from 13 years, $350 million offered by the Giants, 12 years, $315 million offered by the Mets, or for that matter, the original offer that the Twins made to Correa at the beginning of the free agent offseason, they offered Correa 10 years, $285 million. So again, six years, $200 million, with the potential of being 10 years, $270 million. Now, a lot of people are going to ask, is he overpaid? Is he overrated? What's going to happen? Is the ankle, as he ages, going to play a factor? We, of course, don't know. We have to wait to see. But if you think back about the Giants and the Mets and even the Twins, they had to make a decision. They had objective data, if you will, the x-rays, but then they had subjective views on what those x-rays meant or even what this might mean down the road. And this kind of debate has gone on in baseball forever, not in, at this level, not with the advanced technology or in this case x-rays and, and the like that we have, but it's been going on. And it goes on not only on the front end of something, like a contract like this for Carlos Correa, but even after a career has come to an end. And that has been the case for another shortstop. Correa, a current shortstop. This one, a former shortstop. Unlike Carlos Correa, and unlike the vast majority of people ever to play Major League Baseball, Derek Jeter played his entire career at only one position, shortstop, and for only one team, the New York Yankees. That clip was from his final game of his very lengthy 20-year Hall of Fame career at Yankee Stadium. And in his final game, and this was September 25th, 2014, against the Baltimore Orioles, 
That game ended with Derek Jeter slapping a single to right field, a signature hit of his, to end his 20-year Hall of Fame career at Yankee Stadium, a career which saw him bat 310 with 260 home runs, 1,311 RBIs, and an 817 on-base plus slugging percentage. But despite all of those truths, all of those objective facts, if you will, there are some people who, in using data and analytics, say that Derek Jeter was overrated. In particular, or maybe most often, defensively. Well, I'll let those people much smarter than me try to determine what his war is and his UZR and other numbers and then compare them and decide whether he's overrated or not. But listen to these. Again, I mentioned 20 seasons. In those 20 seasons, 16 of those 20 seasons, Derek Jeter played in 145 or more games. In three seasons, he played in less than 130 games, only three of the 20. And one of those was his rookie year in 1995. So that gets us 19 out of his 20 seasons. The one season left over, he played in 131 games. That was in 2011. Playing in these games for the vast majority of the time as the captain of the New York Yankees. And he played 20 seasons, as I mentioned. And in those 20 seasons, during that time he had a Yankee uniform on, they won five World Series championships. So others may say he was overrated. I'm going to say, not only is he not overrated, he is fundamentally underrated. Now, I'm reminded of the fact that sometimes we think things based upon what we see and with a a limited vision by things that have happened. One just happened this past week. There was a, I don't know, a, a fairly big debate on the internet, on social media, Twitter in particular, about how good Babe Ruth would be today. And basically, a lot of people were saying he would be worthless. They, they would say he, he, might, you know, he might be a minor league player. And if you remember, I think it was the first year of In the Bullpen, I had a clip from Trevor Bauer saying that if Barry Bonds were in the game today, he would be an average player. Both the comments about Babe Ruth and Trevor Bauer's comments about Barry Bonds are truly obscene. We are an arrogant lot. And again, this is not so much about old school and new school. It's not about data and analytics. Those things have been around. I believe it's fundamentally because the so-called old school people and the new school people are breathing different air. The old school had an air they breathed, and the new school has a different air. The old school breathed, and again, not necessarily consciously, not necessarily recognizing Christ as king or scripture as the inerrant, infallible word of God, but that mindset permeated the West, permeated our country far more decades ago than it does now. Now the mindset is more, it's about me. So it's a mindset of the past, of it being influenced by, impacted by a biblical worldview, and now far more a humanistic worldview. And we think we can measure everything, and we can compare everything by our measurements. That we can decide whether Babe Ruth would be any good this year or in this time or not based upon those measurements. And sadly, in our day, we often think, not that objective data is important, I would agree with that, but we think it's the most important thing. But in reality, it's the heart of the matter that counts. And by that, I mean a couple of things. 
It's both the passion and love for baseball, which means also a willingness to work and to use what's available to improve. And it's also about the desire to help a team or an organization be champions that is a desire far greater than looking at my personal numbers, my statistics, or my contract. And whatever we're discussing, whether it's baseball or anything else, we have to remind ourselves that even the most objective truth revealed and revealed very clearly doesn't result in the same subjective understanding or the actions that flow from that. Nor do the objective facts, the data, determine the outcome of anything. Now, if you're a believer and you believe God's word is true, as you should, you see this very clearly. The Bible tells us that God clearly reveals himself in creation, in conscience, and through his word, the inscripturated word and most of all the incarnate word. But just through creation and, and, and uh, conscience itself, people know that God is, that he is great and good, or that he is sovereign and holy, that he deserves to be worshipped and thanked. Now for some, like the Greek poet at Mars Hill, they come to the conclusion that there is a being in which or in whom we live and move and have our being. So he has come to one conclusion, which is close but still not true in the ultimate sense. But then others were told in Romans 1, suppress this truth in unrighteousness. So all have the objective data of God revealing himself in creation and conscience, but not all come to the same subjective understanding or application of that. That said, that's why I believe there's a fundamental difference in whether somebody believes the game is going in a good direction and they're encouraged by and pleased by what's going on on and off the field or they have an opposite view. But let's look at some objective data and hopefully encourage us to be excited about what's coming up. People will start reporting to spring training in mid-February. I think the dates for pitchers and catchers reporting vary from maybe February 14th to February 18th, somewhere in that area. Spring training games will begin Friday, February 24th. And by the next day, Saturday the 25th, all 30 teams will have played at least one spring training game. Opening day of the Major League season this year is Thursday, March 30th. And on that day, all 30 Major League teams will be playing, or at least they're slated to play. We could have rainouts or snowouts or whatever the case may be. And this will be the first time that all Major League teams are scheduled to play on opening day since 1968. But between reporting to spring training and the beginning of the regular season, there are going to be some games of great significance taking place. Fox Sports announced today will be the exclusive home to the 2023 World Baseball Classic. It begins March 7th. 47 games across Fox, FS1, FS2, Fox Deportes, and Tubi. We'll bring you all the action from Japan to Taiwan, Phoenix, and Miami. And USA's first game will air on Fox Live from Chase Field in Arizona. You'll see some of the biggest stars in the game, including Bryce Harper, Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Pete Alonso, Nolan Arenado. I can go on and on and on. You get the idea. So an exciting day for us at Fox here to announce that. And you guys have played in it. Poppy, Yeah, you've been a part of the World Baseball Classic a couple times, and I knew it was really special to you, right? Man, it was an honor to represent my country in the World Baseball Classic. I mean, you see the best of the best every day during that competition. And the most important thing, 
at some point towards the end, it's like a family reunion because you basically, let's say you were born here in the state, but your father, your grandfather, your grandma are from any other country out there. You want to represent them. And it's something that is very special and beautiful. So I had so much fun representing my country, and I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, I got to tell you, for me, Kevin, I had an opportunity to play for two great countries, for the U.S. and then for the Dominican Republic. And I know my mom, in my entire career, her proudest moment was when I wore the Dominican uniform. That was very, very special. Looking forward to that. I mean, I tell you, we just keep it going on Fox, so we're excited to have that coming your way March 7th. USA won the last World Baseball Classic in 2017. It returns in March of 2023, 47 games across our family of networks. So it's been a while, as you heard, 2017, but this year in March, we will have the World Baseball Classic. And you heard those comments by Big Poppy and A-Rod about playing for their country and how proud A-Rod's mom was of all that he did when he played for his country in the World Baseball Classic, his native country. Now, I'm holding in my hand a baseball from the first ever World Baseball Classic. It simply says, Official Ball 2006 World Baseball Classic. And I received that baseball from a friend of mine, David Nilsson, who was a guest in the bullpen uh, last year. At that time, he was a player for Australia. This year, in the 2023 World Baseball Classic, he will be the manager for Team Australia. And I hope sometime while the World Baseball Classic is going on to have David Nilsson on with us to talk about it. But here's what we know. There are four pools of five teams. Pool A is Chinese Taipei, Cuba, Italy, Netherlands, and Panama. They report and have their first workout March 4th in Taiwan. Pool B, Australia, China, the Czech Republic, Japan, and Korea. Their first workout, March 5th in Japan. Pool C, Canada, Colombia, Great Britain, Mexico, and the United States. First workout, March 6th in Phoenix and the surrounding Phoenix area. And then finally, Pool D, the Dominican Republic, Israel, Nicaragua, Puerto Rico, and Venezuela. Their first workout, March 6th in Florida. Now, just as a reminder, in 2006, the first ever World Baseball Classic, Japan won it over Cuba in the final round. Japan won again in 2009, beating South Korea for the championship. In 2013, the Dominican Republic won. They beat Puerto Rico in the championship. And then in 2017, the last time we had a World Baseball Classic, again, Puerto Rico finished runner-up. And as you heard in that clip, it was the United States who won the 2017 World Baseball Classic. Now, I can't predict, let alone guarantee, who's going to win the WBC this year. I can, however, guarantee that it won't be won on paper, and it won't be won by those with the best computer algorithms. It's going to be won by human beings, men on the field, men in the dugout, men with a heartbeat, with a passion and a love with a heartbeat that says, this is about playing for my team, or even bigger in this case, my country. But also men who can control their heartbeat, or maybe to be more accurate, control their heart rate in a tournament of this caliber. Just like everywhere else we look, whenever someone is pursuing excellence, or a group of people are pursuing excellence, talent is essential. Data is very important. But it's the heart of the matter, 
or a matter of the heart that results in excellence being achieved, and that in the game of baseball gives excitement both to players and fans alike. And it brings championships to teams, to organizations, and in the WBC, to nations. I think there are two great examples of this heart of the matter that we read about this past week in Major League Baseball. Joe Posnanski tweeted this out. This makes my heart sing. In and of itself, you're thinking, okay, well, what? Well, he posted those words or tweeted those words above a picture that Andrew McCutcheon posted. And in this picture taken from behind McCutcheon, he is holding his children, wearing a pirate's hat and jersey, and then McCutcheon put the caption, where it all began. Andrew McCutcheon has signed a one-year deal with the Pittsburgh Pirates, where it all began for him, where he won his Most Valuable Player Award. Now, I do not know how much data and analytics played into the Pirates deciding to sign McCutcheon. I can guarantee you this. It was by far not as important as what they're getting in the man, Andrew McCutcheon. What the Pittsburgh Pirates think that they will bring to their team, to their players, and that'll mean to the players who will be playing for the Pirates long after McCutcheon is gone, and even to the city of Pittsburgh. I have no idea what Andrew McCutcheon's war will be in 2023. Maybe it'll be zero. Maybe it'll be a sub-replacement level of war. But what he is going to bring to that team, into that organization, into that city, cannot be measured. Now here's the second story. You're probably very familiar with a former MVP, but you may not be familiar with this man, a man who has said that he is retiring from baseball, Mike Murphy. You might say, I'm, I, I don't recall that name. Well, I, I can understand if you don't, but that's why I want to bring it up. This is a man who has been in the clubhouse with the San Francisco Giants since the year that the Giants moved from New York to San Francisco. He has been in that clubhouse for 65 years, starting out as a 16-year-old as a bat boy, very soon after that a clubhouse, a visiting clubhouse manager, and for decades the clubhouse manager for the home team San Francisco Giants. Can you imagine what Murph has seen, the conversations he's had, the experiences he's been able to live? The, the players, just, just here's a few players that have gone through that clubhouse while he has been there. Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Will Clark, Matt Williams, Jeff Kent, and Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds went through that clubhouse twice as a at least a little boy, if not baby, when his father Bobby was playing for the Giants, and then as a player. All of that during the time that Murph was in that clubhouse. His year, his career now, as I said, starting at 16, comes to an end at 81. And he is a widely beloved man. I first met him in 1990, the first year I got called up to the San Francisco Giants. And then I got to spend much more time when I was there in 1995 and 1996. And I remember back then thinking to myself that I hadn't seen somebody so willing to serve others as I saw in Murph. And sometime relatively close to the end of my career, probably in the late 90s, I was at some church function of some sort asked to speak. And I remember using Murph as an example, an example of what it means to serve others. Now, I suppose somebody could calculate the number of uniforms Murph picked up, fixed, or hung up 
uh, the number of jock straps that he washed, the equipment that he ordered, that he inventoried, that he handed out, the food he prepared, the food that he made available for the players and the coaches that needed to eat. They could even say he has worked with and talked to and experienced things with X number of all-stars and Y number of Hall of Famers. And all that's fine and good. But here's the thing. There's no way to measure what that man, Mike Murphy, has meant to the San Francisco Giants organization, players, front office, coaches, and a multitude of others that never did play or work for the San Francisco Giants over his 65 years. There's no way to calculate a war. But I'll tell you this, if there was a way to calculate a war, Murph would have a war. And I'm saying it would be higher than anybody would think. In other words, what I'm saying is the San Francisco Giants won games through the last 65 years that they won because of Mike Murphy working in the clubhouse with a servant's heart as he did. We can't calculate his war, but we can say this. He faithfully served so many people for so many decades. And when all is said and done, that is the heart of the matter. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.